Welcome to Sex Savvy, where nothing is off limits. I'm Kimberly Resnick Anderson, your host and creator of Sex Savvy. I've been helping couples and individuals achieve optimal sexual health for more than 25 years. I am ready to share my unique insights and sex-positive approach with the world. We'll talk about hang-ups, kinks, fantasies, and function, what's hot, what's not, and most importantly, how to become sex-savvy. Hello, and welcome to this week's episode of Sex Savvy. I'm your host, Kimberly Resnick-Anderson. I'd like to start by apologizing for not releasing an episode last week. I had laryngitis and was unable to speak, but I am back at the mic and let's get sex savvy. Today I'm going to be interviewing my good friend and fellow sex therapist, Dr. Shannon Chavez, who has a private practice in Los Angeles. We are going to discuss how chronic illness, such as lupus, rheumatoid arthritis, thyroid disease, and pelvic pain, as well as acute illness, such as cancer, impact the phases of sexual response and affect emotional intimacy in a relationship. We're also going to touch on how autism, physical disability, and aging bring their own unique set of sexual challenges, and how stigmas about each of these special populations affect their sexual health and satisfaction. Finally, Dr. Shannon and I are going to explore how early messages and beliefs from religion can undermine one's sexual comfort and expression for really the rest of their lives. Dr. Shannon calls this spiritual trauma and describes how she approaches this in therapy with her clients. Do you or someone you know or love have a chronic illness that's affecting their sexual health. Of course, chronic illness and acute illness is extremely common, and I'm certain that you or someone that you know is currently dealing with the impact of some sort of chronic or acute illness on their sexuality. Sexual health is a key component of overall well-being and life satisfaction. I say this all the time. And nothing magnifies one's sense of sexual health or lack thereof more than chronic or acute illness. Sex remains an important value in patients with chronic illness and their partners. Although the primary goal is obviously to stay alive and achieve a reasonable quality of life, much energy gets used up trying to maintain or salvage one's sexual function and satisfaction. Or, even worse, some people close the door on their sexuality for good. But there are many hormonal, surgical, pharmacological, medical, and psychological interventions available to improve sexual functioning in patients with chronic and acute illness. Chronic illness and sexual health can live side by side. Our society is uncomfortable with the notion that people who are disabled might still want or have sex. While sexual activity may be placed temporarily on hold as other aspects of living with chronic illness take precedence for men and women with chronic illness. 
Most of my patients with medically induced sexual dysfunction are keenly aware that their partner's sexual needs are likely not being met. They worry that their partner may be unfaithful, no longer find them physically attractive, be afraid of hurting them. I've had some patients say their partners are afraid of catching their illness or write them off as a sexual partner altogether. If they do not already have a partner, they worry they will never find one. I had a patient in a wheelchair say to me, why would anyone ever date me? I'm in a wheelchair. I treated a man who was blind and he said, why would anyone date me? I can't see. Sexual self-esteem is affected by illness. A patient of mine with cancer told me she feels contaminated and toxic and does not want her husband to be exposed to her, quote, poison. A male client told me he had not had sex since his heart attack 17 years earlier. Yes, I said 17 years. He said he was afraid he would have a heart attack and die if he had intercourse. He had occasionally masturbated during the 17 years, but was afraid that the physical exertion of coitus would kill him. As it turned out, there was much more going on than just his fear of death during sex. Once we began discussing all aspects of his sexual history and marital history, it became clear that dynamics with his wife were perpetuating his avoidance of sex. After just seven sessions, he and his wife were having intercourse again. Another client with fibromyalgia and rheumatoid arthritis told me that her range of movement is so limited that she can't find a single sexual position that is comfortable. Even missionary-style sex is difficult for her to endure. She takes one for the team about every four to six weeks, but she gets no pleasure out of it. She is preoccupied with the fear that her husband will cheat on her with someone who can be, quote, fun in bed. She longs for the days when she was game for anything and enjoyed having sex anywhere, anytime. Just because chronically ill patients may need to accommodate for changes in function, mobility, and response, it doesn't mean they can't celebrate their sexuality. Sadly, many clients blame themselves for their sexual problems. Clients with acute or chronic illness or disability sometimes feel silly or embarrassed to bring up sex with their partners, and especially their doctors. They feel like they should be focusing on getting well. Because they feel betrayed by their bodies, sometimes clients don't feel they deserve sex. Sex is for healthy people, one of my clients told me. I have diabetes, high blood pressure, high cholesterol, and I'm morbidly obese. I can barely walk. My penis doesn't work, and it's my own damn fault. One of my clients needed surgery for prostate cancer. As a result of his surgery, he lost some penile length and could no longer provide adequate stimulation for his wife during intercourse. When he ejaculated, his semen was mixed with urine. He was extremely self-conscious about this and said, I'm never going to have sex with my wife again because I'm not going to pee inside of her. Even with a condom on, he was unwilling to have sex. Over time, he came to appreciate that the cancer didn't kill him 
and he was able to reframe the impact of his illness. Eventually, he and his wife resumed sexual activity with a little creativity and humor. Will my body ever work again? Some clients worry that their sexual function may never return. They worry they will never enjoy sex again. They worry that they will lose mobility. They worry they will be infertile, especially men and women who are treated for cancer during childbearing years. They often worry about being able to have children. They worry about a lot of things. Physically ill individuals are sexual beings. Their sexuality is certainly affected by their illness, but it is not rendered invisible. Humor, determination, creativity, and open, honest dialogue go a long way toward reclaiming sexual health when dealing with a chronic illness. Another problem for chronically ill clients is that sexual dysfunctions are underdetected and minimized in the doctor's office. As I've mentioned often in this podcast, physicians are not typically savvy or comfortable when it comes to discussing sexual health concerns with patients, especially patients that are elderly, chronically or acutely ill, or physically or mentally disabled. Patients must advocate for their sexual health needs and initiate those hard conversations with their healthcare providers about their sexual concerns. There are treatment options out there. If you are suffering from a chronic or acute illness that is affecting your sexual health and satisfaction, please shoot me an email at Kimberly at sexsavvypodcast.com or share your story with me by calling my toll-free voicemail at 844-SEX-SAVVY. I'm so happy today to introduce you to my guest, Dr. Shannon Chavez. She's a licensed psychologist, an ASECT certified sex therapist, and she has a private practice here in Beverly Hills, California. Shannon, welcome to Sex Savvy. I'm so excited to be here. Thank you for having me. It's really funny because often when I'm invited to give my opinion about some sort of national sexual health issue, how many times I'm quoted right next to you. I know, we see each other and I feel like I've known you because I see your name too and then we get to finally meet and now here we are. Yes, it's so funny. CNN or Playboy or Huffington Post, it'll say... Kimberly Resnick Anderson says, blah, blah, blah. Shannon Chavez says, and I'm like, what are, what are we, like sisters? So, so it's great to meet you. Sex therapist sister. Yay. <laughs> okay. Well, um, today I wanted to talk with you specifically about how chronic illness, physical disability, intellectual disability, and culture impact sexual health. I know that's an area that you focus on a lot. Yes, all, it is. all of those areas. And we all could sp- spend an hour talking about each one of those. So tell me a little bit about the types of chronic illnesses that people come and see you for management. Sure. So it kind of became a niche in my practice. I started doing workshops for certain communities, and the chronic illnesses I see more often than not are things like people recovering from cancer 
dealing with autoimmune disease, dealing with health issues that are more long-term as far as treatment and just require maintenance and partnered support. So people usually come to me and want a good plan. You know, how do we address these issues? How do we deal with the sex discrepancies in our in our desire or our activity because we're coping with this? And then, of course, communication. How do we talk about it in a safe space together? So can you list some specific types of illnesses or conditions? Sure. So if we look at just chronic illness, things that I've worked with before are cancer. A lot of people recovering from cancer, couples dealing with cancer recovery. I've dealt with a lot of autoimmune disease. You know, this is something I've dealt with personally and made it a professional niche because a lot of people out there are looking at different types of health professionals to figure it out and really need some emotional support along with the physical treatment. So autoimmune disease can be anything like endometriosis, Hashimoto's, thyroid dysfunction, anything autoimmune related. Lupus? Yes, lupus. Arthritis? Rheumatoid arthritis would be under our autoimmune conditions. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You bring up a good point. It can be any major organ or system that gets impacted by autoimmunity. And autoimmune disease is basically your immune system is at a weakened point and gets compromised, and so there's dysfunction somewhere in the body. And maybe dealing with pain or discomfort on a day-to-day basis. So there's a lot of need for emotional and physical support. And how would one of those conditions impact someone sexually? Where do we start? Mind, body, heart, and spirit. First of all, mentally, I think with someone going through that, it's not a quick fix. Often you're seeing different specialists. You're getting a lot of different opinions. It may be a long road to just getting back to a place of feeling comfortable in your body physically. Some on an emotional level, you feel broken. What's wrong with me? Why is my body not working? That's the word I hear a lot from my patients is broken. Yes. Yeah. I mean, a lot of that. So emotionally, it's kind of an isolating and lonely experience because you feel like you're the only one going through it. And most people don't have community right away. And by that, they may go to one doctor or talk to their partner about it, but they may not meet other people that have lupus or one of these conditions. So it's finding a sense of community and support as a start of this process too. That's really important. I ran for years a pelvic pain support group. I still run those here. And the women in the group were so thirsty to talk to other women who had pelvic pain because, of course, they felt, like you said, they were the only ones struggling with this, and it's very isolating. I think the group format is actually the most efficacious. I think individual therapy and couples therapy have their place, of course, but I think for people recovering from an illness or dealing with a chronic illness, group is a really, really powerful format. I agree too, because sometimes you do your healing just by feeling validated. Wow, someone knows what I'm going through. They wake up every morning and they go through the same thing. So I've seen a lot of women really needing that community or partners needing that community and and finding whatever it may be. It could be a forum online where you get to just talk about your story, or it could be a group that meets up and addresses the issues together where you don't feel alone and you're going through it with someone So it's a support system and a place to feel understood, validated, heard, all the things that you may not be getting while you're doing treatment, which are part of that emotional component that could really help. So in terms of the phases of sexual response, I'm just going to do a quick reminder for my listeners. Desire, arousal, orgasm, and satisfaction. Which phase or phases 
of sexual response are most likely to be affected, let's say, for example, by lupus or rheumatoid arthritis? Yes, such a great question. I would probably say our first two phases of sexual responsiveness, and that can be either because of mental barriers or emotional barriers. So you're feeling disconnected from your body because you're in pain. You're not feeling great. Maybe you're feeling a lack of energy, your appetite's changed, your body's just changing on a physiological level. So sometimes you're not feeling the sensations that would be associated with pleasure. You're focusing on the pain or the inflammation or the discomfort, and so you're just not connected to your body the way that you would want to be to experience your sexuality in a positive way. So there can be a real disconnect there. So that's a first and foremost place. And then emotionally, of course, it's you're going through all of this and dealing with it and coping. It can be stressful. It can cause distress because it's becoming such a big part of your life. You start to identify with your disease, and then it becomes this is who I am rather than this is something I'm dealing with. So that's emotionally. It can break you down. You really need support there to feel that this isn't who you are and that this is just something you are going through and that you need support while you're going through it. And a partner needs to know how to support you as well if you're going through it in a relationship. I find when I work with couples and one of them has either a chronic or an acute illness that the non-ill partner often de-eroticizes the other person and sort of writes them off as a sexual partner because they see them as weak or fragile They have trouble translating their sexual interest to that person because they don't want to burden them or bother them or hurt them, you know, physically by accident. And so I treat a lot of people who say that they still feel virile, but that their partners have written them off. Yes. Have you seen that as well? I've seen that a lot, actually. And I think it's so important to realize that's a communication issue, you know, where we're figuring out or assuming a lot in our heads and we're not actually asking, does this hurt? Are you comfortable with this? And so there's not a lot of communication about the changes that are going on or how things are ebbing and flowing as far as when you feel comfortable for touch and when you may not want to be touched as much. So there is a a lack of really knowing and understanding what that is. And the vulnerability piece, we're not asking and we're feeling whatever reasons that we're not asking insecure, we don't want to feel shut down, or we don't want to be rejected, whatever it may be. So we make these assumptions, and that leads to disaster. Yes. I treated a woman whose husband was in a coma because he had a viral encephalitis, so his brain was literally swollen. And they said to her, he'll probably either die or wake up a vegetable. So get your affairs in order. And they were a young couple in their 30s. And they had a young son. And she had this image of taking her one or two-year-old to go visit daddy in the nursing home because that's what she had been told. And she was actually hoping he would just go because that would be easier than living all those decades as a vegetable. So he had tubes and machines and, you know, all these things. And there he was in this bed. And then he opened his eyes and he was completely coherent and recovered because she had prepared for his death or profound brain damage. She had a lot of trouble seeing him again as virile and strong and masculine because she had, like I said, sort of written him off sexually. 
And it took a long time for them to get back to where she could experience him as strong. Right. I mean, what you're describing is a trauma. You have this experience that is a traumatic one and you cope in a certain way. And then like a switch, things end up being a different circumstance, but you've already internalized and told yourself a certain message and coped with that trauma in some way. And now you want to switch it the other way, but you've already created beliefs and mechanisms that have to be acknowledged. And maybe even recognizing that as a trauma can help. Definitely. The recovery process. It did for sure in this case. Can you speak a little bit about cancer? Yes. So what I've learned from people recovering from cancer is that sexuality is not talked about. Mm -hmm. The cancer is the focus. Intimacy and sexuality are kind of put on the back burner. And this is normalized because the cancer is the focus. But I think what's so important is anyone recovering from cancer is that we need that intimacy and connection for healing, to feel supported, to talk about all the changes going on. To feel human. Exactly. To feel alive. And again, like I said before, not to identify. This isn't your entirety of who you are. You're still alive and well and dealing with life. And so this doesn't have to be the entire focus. But I think in the medical community, there is a lot of focus on the language and how it's being treated around cancer recovery, where sexuality is left out of that. So a lot of people feel lost. I find that there is a need for permission. Is it okay for me to be sexual even though I'm going through these changes? Or what's safe? What should I be doing? What products are okay to use on my body? So I find a lot of people just need good education. And what products are safe and which ones aren't? That's a good question. I think every body's different, but for most women, let's talk about breast cancer. They may want products that are non-hormonal, that are not going to be disruptive to their endocrine system. So I always say, no matter if it's cancer or not, clean products. Whatever we're putting on our bodies. Paraben-free. Paraben-free, glycerin-free, hormone-free products that are have ingredients that are natural moisturizers that are going to be helpful, especially if you've gone through chemotherapy and your tissue is more fragile, susceptible to tearing and irritation. You want to make sure you're using products that are going to support the atrophy that may come as a result of that treatment. What's your favorite lube? I'll share mine. Ooh, favorite lubes. You know what I really love is Pure Med. I've really enjoyed their products because they are natural. They have jojoba oils. They have ingredients that you can actually pronounce that are really natural. And I keep saying natural because if we look at the back of a a lubricant ingredient list and it's stuff that we don't know, we've never heard of it, it's probably not great for your body. Mm -hmm. So we don't need all that stuff to make a good lubricant. So we have to think about what is a lubricant. It's basically something that creates a barrier to friction and that can help moisturize our tissue. So we don't need a lot of extra stuff to do the job. Correct. What's your favorite lube? (laughs) (laughs) I like good, clean, fun. Oh, that's a good popular one in my practice. Slippery stuff. Oh, I like the name. So I don't know it, but I like the name already. (laughs) Yes. So just something as simple as education around lube and the difference between silicone and water-based and oil-based and the pros and cons of each and just being able to teach that to a patient, whether they have cancer or not. These are simple things that people don't ask about. 
Exactly. And I think with chronic illness or cancer, whatever it may be, we don't necessarily get a manual that says, here are the changes your body is going to go through. Here's what to expect. A lot of my clients will say, I never really got that information. I wasn't aware until this was happening and I felt terrified or I felt something was wrong with me and this wasn't part of the normal process. So I think that is something to consider. We need a lot of education. So usually when I meet people in therapy, they're asking all those questions for the first time. What can I expect? What, what's, how long is this going to last? Are these changes normal? So a lot of the beginning is normalizing and just talking about the nature of the illness and how it does affect the body. And at what point are your patients typically seeking help? Is this post-diagnosis, post-treatment, somewhere in the middle? Usually post-treatment. So they've been at a place where they are in recovery and or their cancer is in remission and now they're looking for resources. My body's changed and sex is painful. How do we address that? Or I'm not feeling any desire. I'm not in the mood and, and I don't know how to talk to my partner about that. So usually the concerns come up as a result and they're needing some guidance or assistance on how to get through that. What about autism? Mm-hmm. Do you see many clients on the spectrum? I do. So obviously on the spectrum can be any sort of area of functioning or areas of concern, especially around intimacy. I work with a lot of couples that may have a partner on the spectrum. And what they're dealing with are how do we communicate or get our needs met if they're very different? Or a partner may have more inhibitions around sex, and how do we work with communicating about that? So a lot of it is skill building and then understanding as well as what some of those limitations are for a partner that's on the spectrum. I see a lot of couples where one is on the spectrum, usually high-functioning Asperger's, and they have some sensory issues where certain kinds of touch feel not pleasurable, Mm -hmm. or certain smells, or the lighting, or certain sounds, and they're just very susceptible to sensory kinds of issues, and it can interfere. And I also see a lot of couples where one is on the spectrum, and the other feels like they don't, they're not intuitive, or they're not picking up on social cues, they're not attuned to their partner, and they're very rigid or concrete, And trying to work on that can be really delicate. I've seen individuals grow in that area, but I've seen some who maximize the wiggle room that they have. And it really boils down to the other partner being respectful of how they can relate to them and be having realistic expectations. Exactly. Realistic expectations and sometimes building a foundation for the first time. So maybe this couple has been functioning this way for 20 plus years or they've developed all these patterns and habits around how they get their needs met or don't get their needs met. So it's breaking through a lot of that reconditioning over time where they've been doing these different dances and intimacy that haven't been working and starting fresh. That's what I'm doing with a lot of couples is the foundation hasn't been set, but let's figure it out for the first time. And that can be learning how to communicate non-verbally and verbally, giving feedback, learning what are social cues we should be picking up on. 
How do we make eye contact? How do we touch? How do we redirect our partners in ways that can better communicate what feels good for us? So a lot of this is skill building that we're learning for the first time. But because it's happening together, it can sometimes be both partners' responsibilities. There's accountability on both ends, and it can be something they learn together. So there's already the shared intimacy in that. I know that you work with certain populations and help them to explore their sexuality in a way that they never would have done on their own, given the cultural messages that they received. Can you speak a little bit about that? Yes. People always ask me why I wanted to combine sex and religion. And I think I grew up in a conservative Latino household. Religion was a big part of our culture. So I was impacted by those messages. And I remember seeing from a very early age how uncomfortable people were talking about sex. But then knowing that this is what we all have in common. We're all sexual. You're either this body or that body. And so we all have this thing in common, but there's so much shame around it because of rules and regulations. So I think I normalize that this is a common experience despite what background you come from, that there may have been messages that shaped who you are or that created fear or discomfort around your sexuality and that a lot of people can find healing just by talking about it. So I want to create that space for these populations that may not be able to go to their community and talk to someone or go to a pastor or a rabbi or any sort of religious leader in their community and talk about it because there's so much discomfort. Will they be judged? Are they going to feel a certain way? Will that assume something about who they are sexually? I think for a lot of people, realizing how powerful these messages are, a lot of the times I'll hear people say, well, that was in the past. I'm not religious anymore. Why am I still feeling this way? It's really a part of our programming. Even if you don't actively think it, it can still be in your belief system. In your DNA is what I say. That's even a better way to describe it. It's almost like you've taught yourself over time to not trust your body because you've been told that you can't right? Don't do that. It'll be wrong. And so there's this... You'll go to hell. You'll go blind. You'll grow hair on your palms. Some major consequences (laughs) of trusting those sexual urges. But that's right. I mean, a lot of how I treat spiritual trauma is very similar to treating any type of trauma. We look at it as if there are post-traumatic stress, learning to re-associate and connect, becoming embodied, trusting your senses, building that relationship with self first, and knowing that it is a journey to get to a place where you start to build that trust again, but it's, it's anything is possible with the right intentions. So speak about some of the particular communities that you provide service to in terms of religion or cultural It's interesting. It kind of came out of the work that I originally started doing in the sex addiction or compulsive sexual behavior communities. I was seeing a lot of Orthodox Jewish couples in this community dealing with compulsive out-of-control behavior around pornography use, masturbation. And again, as we know, in a lot of these communities, it is absolutely restricted, taboo. There is absolutely no access. So there's a lot of confusion, even as a partner, discovering this behavior 
partner in a spouse and dealing with all the aspects of how to get support around that. So that became a niche area. And then through that, I've worked with Mormon populations. I was in Arizona where it was a primarily Mormon community. So what I've learned in all these communities that no matter what belief system they're coming from, a lot of similarities. A lot of overlap. Yeah. A lot of, a lot of universal issues. Exactly. Yeah. But I work with a lot of people that are coming even from different cultures. So I'm Latina. I work with a lot of people coming from this culture who may have very specific messages that aren't religious, but there's a conservative nature. Sex wasn't talked about. It's not okay to touch yourself. Good girls don't. And so these messages are really embedded in who they are. And so there's a lot of fear around sex. There's a lot of misinformation. And so whether it's conservative religion or culture, there's just a lot of need for education. So I call it non-pornographic sex ed that I provide because I want people to feel safe knowing you can get the tools and understanding your sexuality and it doesn't mean you have to go outside of your comfort zone. It's just learning the basics, knowing your body parts, knowing how your physiology works, male and female, understanding the changes we go through and that can feel life-changing. I've seen people in one session get some good information and just you can see their bodies just ah, relax and a relief of that weight has been lifted. And that's just the power of information. Definitely. A lot of people may even never get to that point of going to therapy because of that belief, right? They're going to change my mind. They're going to make me do something I'm not comfortable with. So there's a lot of misconceptions. And I realize when I'm working with conservative populations, I may be the first therapeutic experience they've had. So I, I, I always focus on the relationship first. So let's meet and get to know who you are before we even dive into your problems. I want to be able to make sure that we have a good rapport and that you can feel open to having these very personal, deep conversations about your sexuality. And so you may even get a little bit of that testing, right? Are you going to make me do this? or Are you going to try to convince me that I should be in an open marriage or that I should be having sex with two people at the same time. Because I don't want to do that. Sure, no, of course. Some people feel, are you going to judge me because I had an affair? Or are you going to tell on me? Are you going to tell my spouse? So there's a lot of worries around how active a role a therapist can take and will take. And I'm always explaining the ethics around the boundaries and the role that we play and where the parameters stop and start so people can feel safe. Exactly. If you don't feel safe in therapy where you can really disclose and, and really unpack the deep trenches of where sexuality wounds exist, then it's not going to be a great process. And a lot of people have had wounding from other therapists. I've realized that whether they've imposed their own values or they have made judgments or they've given them advice. And I always tell people therapy is not about getting advice and being told what to do. It's more of being able to make those decisions. I always say, you're you're driving. I'm just navigating here in the back. I so love that. I, yep, you know, I say I'm the co-pilot. They're the pilot. There you go, yeah. right? And I, I want them to feel empowered to make those decisions. I'm just here to be a big toolbox full of tools or a lot of knowledge and information. And as you said, the clinical. Here's a different way to look at it. You can do whatever you want with that. Integrate that into your own understanding of who you are, but there's no one way to do anything. Of course. And I'll often tell people that they need to honor their values. And a lot of people don't know what their values are. So I do a lot of exercises around identifying values and what's meaningful to people. 
I encourage them to explore the pros and cons of any decision, but ultimately they make the decision. And I will point out themes from their past that might make them more likely to make a certain decision. And I want to make sure that they're aware of that so that they're not reenacting old trauma over and over again, like repetition compulsion. So I'll say, I wonder, Danny, if you're leaning toward this because in your early life, right? So I try to link up, make those associations for them. So they are empowered to be insightful about what might be driving or motivating their decisions, but then ultimately the decisions are theirs. I mean, we're just really here to be observers and witness the things that go on so then we can be mindful and give that feedback. You know, here's what I'm noticing, here's what's coming up, and here's how I'm feeling even in the room. You know, I think we are, the intimate relationship we create with our clients is one that we can use to help them learn and understand how they are with partners or how they're presenting themselves in the world. Absolutely. And and I think it's so great that you mentioned that because I think some therapists aren't savvy in that way. And there are lost opportunities to give that kind of feedback. So if I make a comment and my patient gets hostile or defensive, and then I notice three or four or 10 or 12 or 15 times that when I mention a certain topic or a certain theme that they always get hostile or defensive, I'll say, did you ever notice? Or when I do this, I notice that. And I only do it when I have enough rope to hang them, so to speak. I don't ever do it after the first time or the second time, only when there's a consistent pattern. And sometimes people will say, well, duh, of course I knew that. And other times people will say, I had no idea I was doing that. Did I really do that? Oh my God, thank you for pointing that out. You know, so something so subtle can have such a big impact. I couldn't agree more because they may never heard it. People haven't pointed it out. So I think learning that awareness is part of the healing journey in any type of therapy, even outside of sex therapy. I'm more aware of how I am and, and how other people experience me. So let's say someone has a physical disability and they're not going to get better. Let's say someone is in a wheelchair or they're missing a limb or they have some sort of permanent, some kind of neurologic damage. And it's not a matter of get through treatment. It's a matter of creating a new normal. Yes. How do you approach that differently than something that may be temporary or fleeting? Mm-hmm. That's a a great question. I think sex and disabilities is something that we don't hear a lot about, and we need more resources, even in the field. There's only maybe a couple of books I can think of that really address this topic. And so I think first, we don't want to look at people with disabilities as not being sexual. You know, everyone's sexual no matter what body they're in. So I think the first step I usually take is having a lot of resources for a client or couple coming in. So resources may be tools products they can use, equipment if they're dealing with a disability, everything from certain sex furniture to equipment that can help them have more comfortable interactions. If they aren't partnered, we can use everything from some of the new technology out where they can still have sensory experiences or interact with partners. And I'm thinking of things like virtual reality sex in porn, things that can be a way for people to engage and still feel stimulated, even outside of the limitations that their body's going through. 
So my first message is always, there's always options. That's the great thing about our field. There are people that are creating amazing products with technology. The opportunities are endless. What we never want to feel is there's nothing for me. I'm just going to give up. I'm always uh, one to say, no, let's figure this out. I, I get curious as a clinician, what is out there? If I don't know, let me figure it out. Let me reach out to my colleagues and see what's available. So there's a great community of people that are creating products, everything from specific furniture, as I mentioned, to toys, to devices for disabilities. So it's a big market now specifically for making people feel inclusive, regardless of their limitations. I teach at the med school at UCLA. And when I talk with my medical students about patients with physical disability, or patients specifically who are in wheelchairs, they get so uncomfortable at the notion of these people having a sexual life. And I'll question them about that. I'll say, why does being in a wheelchair render someone asexual? There's this infantilizing, patronizing kind of institutional response or assumptions about people who are in wheelchairs or who need crutches or have other assistive technology. When you lose an arm, you're not losing your genitals. Exactly. Right? If you're in a wheelchair, you still have erogenous zones. I, I just have so much trouble wrapping my head around that one. I think people, just able-bodied people, are so uncomfortable and feel so awkward. And I think sometimes they feel sorry for, and there's a lot of pity for people, and that's getting in the way rather than just an honest conversation about, so what are you able to do and what aren't you able to do? And where do you have sensation and where do you not have sensation? And just talking very matter-of-factly about it with them, rather than seeing them as asexual or infantilizing them. Exactly. I mean, sometimes my clients with disabilities have some of the healthiest sex lives of any of my clients because they have... So true. They've dealt with it. They have been really good at communicating what their needs are. They've had to be creative. Creative. Basically just done a lot of the sex therapy work that I'm generally prescribing and they are able to do it because they are confident and they understand what they need and they're not letting it be a limitation. So I think, again, it goes back to these messages in our culture. Because we're not talking about sex and disabilities, people aren't aware. You bring up a good point. Medical students who are going to be working in the health community with people are not feeling prepared to talk about sex histories and talk about sexuality. So we we just need a lot more awareness around this and education more than anything. Definitely. The other population that my medical students feel really uncomfortable working with are older people. I'm an old person now, so I better be careful about what age I use. But, you know, 65 and up. We also tend to be very infantilizing about sex when it comes to people beyond a certain age, like grandmas and grandpas. And the thought of grandmas and grandpas, you know, let alone their parents, that's horrifying image, but their grandma and grandpa, I'll say, envision your grandmother orally stimulating your grandfather. And they're like, stop, stop, I'm going to have nightmares, you know? And I'll say, I hope that, that 
your grandma and grandpa are getting it on. They'll say, oh my God, that's disgusting. They probably are from all the studies we read. People right? are having the best sex in their golden age of sexuality. Absolutely. So much so that STIs are on the rise yes. in that 60 and up population because they're engaging in sex but they're condom naive. They're baby boomers, pre-AIDS, so they're just not aware of the risks. And they're getting AIDS and chlamydia and herpes and all these things at a really rapid clip compared to under 40. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's, you know, again, if we think of culture, we're not seeing aging bodies and sexuality. And I have a big issue with even how menopause is talked about for women, as if it's this doomsday end of your sexuality. And I actually flip that message to menopause can be a time where we celebrate New beginnings, sexuality, that's all you're Liberation. Your own. Exactly. No pregnancy worries. You know, you don't have to carry a tampon in your purse. And yeah, it's, it's liberating. Right. And there's just a lot of negative messages towards aging sexuality, even with males, right? The Viagra culture and that even changes in a male's sexual response due to aging that's pathologized. Right. Let's right away give him Viagra rather than understanding how sexuality changes. Men need a lot more stimulation the longer they are in their lifespan because their bodies change, their hormones change, their body is changing and evolving. It doesn't mean anything's wrong with you. It means that we need to get better at coping with the changes rather than identifying a problem every time we notice a change. So much pathologizing, especially of women's sexual health too, even more so than male. But yes, I agree 100%. Plus, Our lifespan is increasing, but health span. So people are living longer and healthier too. So 70s, the new 60, 60s, the new 50. Exactly. We've come a long way. We're healthy now and we're living long lives and our bodies may age, but your sexuality never ages. So (laughs) you can feel as young as you want to feel. I love that. I love it. Well, it has been such a treat to chat with you. I'm definitely want to have you back on Sex Savvy so we can have a part two. Sounds good to me. I'd love to come back. And I'm sure I'll see you quoted next to me in the next article that I pick up because we're sex therapy sisters. Sex therapy sisters. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Thank you so much, Dr. Shannon Chavez. If people want to find you, how can they do that? My website is drshannonchavez.com or on social media at drshannonchavez. And you do offer teletherapy and coaching to people around the world and throughout the country? I do. So on my website, you can set up an initial consult, which I do complimentary over the phone, and we can talk about goals, and I do offer my services all over the world. So we can connect anywhere we have a computer. That's wonderful. I'm excited because I want to refer... If I'm working with a couple and one of them needs individual therapy or vice versa, we can work together and be collegial in that way. Perfect. Yeah. Awesome. All right. Dr. Shannon Chavez, thank you for joining me on Sex Savvy. Thank you. You've been listening to Sex Savvy. If you find value in this podcast, please like, follow, share, comment, or review on your favorite podcast app. Your participation helps keep Sex Savvy free and available to all who are interested. Kimberly and the entire Sex Savvy team appreciate your loyalty and support.